A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. Your love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Love one another with the affection of sisters and brothers. Try to outdo one another in showing respect. Don't grow slack, but be fervent in spirit. The one you serve is Christ. Rejoice in hope. Be patient under trial. Persevere in prayer. Look on the needs of God's holy people as your own. Be generous in offering hospitality. Bless your persecutors. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have the same attitude toward everyone. Don't be condescending to those who aren't as well off as you. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil with evil. Be concerned with the highest ideal in the eyes of all people. Do all you can to be at peace with everyone. Dear friends, don't try to get even. Let God take revenge. To quote scripture, vengeance is mine. I will pay them back, says our God. But there is more. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. This is one of our sacred scriptures. Thanks be to God. It was April of last year when Pastor Nadia Boltz Weber launched her new podcast called The Confessional, in which she invites her guests to recount stories of themselves at their worst, and then asks them to take the next and more difficult step to look upon themselves with redemptive eyes. In the first episode, she welcomes her guest, Megan Phelps Roper, whose name may ring a bell because she is fairly well-known for who she isn't anymore. Phelps Roper was born into a close-knit family in Topeka, Kansas in the mid-80s. And from the moment of her birth, she was, as so many of us are, swept up into the priorities and anxieties, hopes and fears of her parents and grandparents. And like most of us, she also learned to relate to those ideals through the religious stories her family told. The difference, however, between her experience and ours was that her grandfather was the Reverend Fred Phelps, the founding pastor of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. Most of us are familiar with Westboro, so I won't belabor the point. They embody a, a caricature of the biases and hateful rhetoric of American culture wars, their politics and theology so extreme that even far-right politicians squirm when they show up in the news cycle. For a podcast about people when they're at their worst, Boltzweber would have had a hard time finding a more potent place to start. In the episode, Megan Phelps Roper recounts what it was like for her being born into a family that routinely protested funerals and churches, singing and holding signage, claiming 
The dead and their bereaved families deserved whatever tragedy had befallen them. She recounted the zeal that had led them to put on a show of forced laughter and dancing around counter-protesters in order to ensure that they'd be seen by mourning families, grieving parents and children, certain all the while that the all-powerful and angry God of righteousness was on their side. But the turn in the story comes when in 2012, Megan Phelps Roper, ultra-conservative and religious fundamentalist, changed her mind. At great personal cost, in November of that year, she made the choice to walk away from it all. Now, if you're anything like me, there is one question burning in your mind. How? In a world where we are so often more interested in digging in our heels than learning that we might be wrong, more interested in criticizing the other team than examining ourselves, what happened to this woman that was actually effective in leading her to change her mind? What is it that actually worked? In the episode, Boltzweber asks Megan, when did you start to feel unnerved by what you and your family were doing? Megan responds that it started with conversations on Twitter, where her role was to use the platform to spread Westboro's message. But then something unexpected happened. Most people, Megan says, weren't interested in her experience as a member of Westboro, as a protester. They wanted to talk about quote, the things that I believed that showed that I was a terrible person, end of quote. But then sometimes someone would say something like, you know, everybody hates you. That must be so hard. As Megan says, quote, they were clearly showing interest in my experience as a human being and not just in what Westboro believes. End of quote. She goes on to reflect on how as these kinds of interactions continued, she began to reflect that curiosity and genuine interest back at some of the more compassionate voices that reached out to her over Twitter. Eventually, she reached a breaking point. One of those voices was a teenage boy in Australia who tweeted a photo essay from The Atlantic about the famine in Somalia with an image of an emaciated child as the cover photo. Megan knew that her role was to take that photo and write what Westboro calls Godsmack about it, an article explaining how this is a punishment from God because, quote, you are all so evil. But she couldn't. Instead, she began to weep. And that was the beginning of the end. Boltzweber reflects on Megan's story saying, the thing I think is so interesting about your story, of, of your thinking changing, is that it didn't happen as a result of people yelling at you on Twitter. It happened as a result of people having compassion for you and curiosity about you.
And that's the turn. Megan Phelps Roper did not change her mind because finally she'd been yelled at one too many times. She did not change her mind by being shamed into it. She didn't even change her mind because of well-reasoned arguments and logic. She left behind her hate-filled worldview along with everything and everyone she knew because someone had the courage to demonstrate curiosity and compassion. She changed because for just a moment, someone was able to set aside their judgment of the role she was playing and say to her, everyone is yelling at you, that's gotta be so hard. Are you okay? And that changed everything. Bless your enemies, Paul writes to the Church of Rome, which was split into two opposing parties that seemed to hate one another. I know you want to curse them, but if you want anything to change, you must bless them. I know you want to repay their evil with evil, but that will only push you deeper into your resentments. No one's mind will change. Instead, meet evil with good. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. When you do this, they might remember your humanity, feel the healthy burn of guilt at how they've behaved, and be transformed by love. Don't fight hate with hate. Overcome hate with good. The perennial wisdom of these words is self-evident. They could just as easily have been written about Megan Phelps Roper, about you, or me. It is a truth hidden since the beginning of time that it is kindness and not judgment that disarms us and opens up the pathway for transformation. What is it in us that time and again convinces us this isn't true? What is this lie that calls for judgment and dominance? And how might we shine the light of truth on it to expose it for the lie that it is? How can we become the kind of people for whom this disarming kindness is possible, natural even? This is a question that asks us to turn our attention from Topeka, Kansas, to the streets of Detroit, Michigan. Marshall Rosenberg was born in the mid-30s to Jewish parents into what was also an impoverished and unstable home. In June of 1943, when he was nine years old, his family moved to Detroit, where one week later the city erupted in chaos. The Detroit race riots, the combustion of a powder keg of systemic racism, xenophobic social tension, and limited wartime resources left 433 wounded and 34 dead. 
and from his living room window, locked inside for three days, nine-year-old Rosenberg had a front row seat. During those formative three days, the seed of a question was planted in his mind. It was a seed that grew and sprouted as he experienced the harsh anti-Semitism that waited for him at school each day. It was the seed of a question that would shape the trajectory of his life. Why do we do this to each other? What is it in us that leads us to disconnect from our compassionate nature and leads us to believe instead that we must behave violently and exploitatively? Driven by these questions, Rosenberg went into the field of psychotherapy and completed a PhD in clinical psychology. After some time, he would come to pioneer a field of study known as nonviolent communication. And it is here that we can find a key to answering our question. Dr. Rosenberg's premise is surprisingly simple. We've evolved to communicate through a language of judgment. We communicate with a logic that I'm right and you are wrong, that I must win so that I can be in charge. We defend ourselves, reacting with the impulse to withdraw or attack. Does any of that sound familiar? But what would happen, Rosenberg wondered, if we could learn a new language? What would happen if we could train ourselves to recognize when we're stepping into that pattern and instead focus our attention on curiosity? Specifically, what if we focused our attention on two particular questions? How are we feeling? What emotion? And what need is not being met to give rise to that feeling? It works in reverse as well. What are they feeling? And what need is not being met in them that gives rise to that feeling? From there, so the teaching goes, we are able to communicate in a whole new way. Rather than jumping to defensiveness or telling others why they're wrong, we can give ourselves the tools to try to understand. We might say something like, it sounds like when this happens, you're feeling angry because your need for safety isn't being met. Is that right? Rosenberg found that the simple experience of hearing their feelings and needs reflected back to them disarmed the egos of the people he worked with and could enable them to hear whatever needed to be said next. Well, when I see this, I feel this way because this need of mine isn't being met. We've been working through Rosenberg's book in our book study on Wednesday nights for the last five weeks now. And in the book, he shares this story. A student of nonviolent communication volunteering at a food bank was shocked when an elderly coworker burst out from behind a newspaper and said, what we need to do in this country is bring back the stigma of illegitimacy. 
Now you're probably having a reaction right now, maybe judging this woman's outburst as wrong and, and dangerous. There are probably things you might want to say about shame and harm, especially if you imagine that she had just expressed this view in the form of a Facebook post or a tweet. Or maybe you would silently judge this woman as ignorant and withdraw until later when you could process your feelings in private. The student, however, chose to get curious about this woman's feelings and needs. Are you reading something about teenage pregnancies in the paper? She asked. Yes, her coworker responded. It's unbelievable how many of them are doing it. The student tried to listen not so much to the content of the woman's argument, but to listen instead for her feelings and unmet needs or values giving rise to them. I want to understand better, the student said. Are you feeling alarmed because you'd like kids to have stable families? Of course, the woman replied. My father would have killed me if I'd done anything like that. The student said, so it sounds like you're, you're annoyed that there's no fear of punishment for the girls who get pregnant these days. Well, the coworker said, at least fear and punishment worked. It says here that girls are having babies just so taxpayers like me can take care of them. The temptation to evaluate and respond was strong, but the student kept on. She recognized that the woman was feeling annoyed because she valued responsible use of her tax money and she didn't feel that she was getting it. So, she tried, you're exasperated because you would like your tax money to be used for other purposes, is that right? Certainly is, her coworker said. Do you know that my son and his wife want a second child and they can't have one because it costs so much? It sounds like you're sad about that, the student offered. You'd like to have a second grandchild, I bet. At this point, the student sensed a release in her coworker. Yeah, I would, she said, as a moment of silence elapsed. The student felt surprised to discover that while she still wanted to express her own views, the tension had dissipated. She felt empathetic, not adversarial. It was then time to get curious about herself and what she was feeling and needing. You know, the student said at last, when you first said that we should bring back the stigma of illegitimacy, I felt really scared because it matters to me that all of us here care deeply for people who need help. Some people who come here for food are teenage parents, and I want to be sure that they feel welcome and cared for. Would you mind telling me how you feel when you see our unmarried parents, like Amy or Deshaul? Rosenberg then writes that the conversation continued with several more exchanges until the student felt reassurance that her coworker did indeed offer caring and respectful help to their unmarried clients. 
and learned over the course of the encounter that she could, in fact, disagree with someone in a way that met her need for honesty and mutual respect. Both of them felt heard. Both of them felt understood. Both of them felt loved. And it opened a pathway for growth. Love one another with the sincere love of brothers and sisters, Paul writes. Outdo one another, not in shows of power, but in shows of respect. Look on the needs of others as though they were your own. And be generous in offering hospitality. Megan Phelps Roper, Marshall Rosenberg, the Apostle Paul, they all invite us to ask the same question. What if we were to look at our opponents, at the Democrats or the Republicans, the anti-maskers or the liberal snowflakes, at our own mothers or fathers, what if we were to look at ourselves, not as right or wrong for the judging, but as the children we are, continuing to grow and react to unmet needs and unheard feelings? Who would we be? Rather than judgment, what if we looked at that which we don't like with curiosity which gives birth to understanding, and understanding which gives birth to empathy, and empathy which gives birth to love, and love which clears the path for transformation. Is this not, after all, how God looks at you? In the light of these questions, may the darkness of judgment give way, and may we love a new world into being. Amen. Cards balance out the scales. We are one wind.
distracted by our differences. Underneath what's detectable with eyes, every particle's vibrating with the same Shut your brain up. Lord. 